0: or wherever you listen.
1: So since March 2020, I haven't eaten a single meal that I did not cook myself. Mm -hmm. So no takeout, no restaurants. I still stay inside pretty much every day, except once every week and a half, I'll go outside to take out the trash. And when I do, I still wear two masks, gloves, goggles, and... I still spend a lot of time kind of washing my hands and cleaning myself afterwards. Welcome to How To.
2: I'm science writer David Epstein. For about a year and a half now, we've waited for the day we could hug family members and friends. And while the pandemic is still ravaging other parts of the world, here in the U.S., we're fortunate to have cautiously turned a corner. As more people have gotten vaccinated and the CDC eased restrictions, we've been able to start getting back to normal. Whatever that means. But what about if that getting back to normal is anxiety inducing itself? We're out of practice at being social, never mind not jumping every time a stranger sneezes near us. Our listener this week is struggling on that front.
1: Hi, my name is Brandon. I'm a 30 year old creative professional in New York City, and I'm having a difficult time adjusting my strict and pretty extreme quarantine lifestyle, despite now being fully vaccinated. Given
2: that he's fully vaccinated, Brandon's concerns might seem overblown. Getting a breakthrough case of COVID, particularly long-haul COVID, and that's what Brandon's worried about, it's really
1: unlikely. But this wouldn't be the first time he's gotten a rare infection. So in 2017, I experienced something that happens to roughly maybe one in every 200,000 people in the U.S. every year. And it was a case of viral encephalitis, which is an inflammation of the brain caused by a virus. So at that time, I was hospitalized, and there was a period of a few weeks where all aspects of my life felt really foggy because my brain was swelling. Mm. Like, I I couldn't find my way around a neighborhood that I had spent my entire life around Mm. without the help of my phone. Since that time, I felt like I'd made a very good recovery and feel around 95%. But my life was really changed by that experience in that I realized for the first time (laughs) that I was not invincible.
2: Some cases of viral encephalitis can lead to permanent brain damage, but that's a pretty freak
1: occurrence. So when I kind of do this math, it works out to roughly, you know, 0.001% chance of happening. And so then this affects how I interpret the numbers about breakthrough infections. I don't think that's such a small number compared to the millions who have been vaccinated. I, I think I could very easily be one of those people. So instead
2: of thinking along the lines of lightning doesn't strike twice, Brandon's internalized the possibility, however small, that he could get a very, very rare illness again. But the reason Brandon wrote to us in the first place is that he knows he can't keep living this way, hiding
1: from the outside world. For many people, I think I've taken it to an extreme. I still double mask and, you know, wear these uh, workshop goggles that I have, And I I look ridiculous when I go outside. Brandon's eager to
2: see family and friends again. He just can't figure out how to get from point A to point B. It's a tricky problem. So we decided to call two experts this week. First, economist Tim Harford, author
3: of The Data Detective. Well, we don't think in terms of numbers. Uh, We think in terms of stories. And I can hear... Brandon looking at the numbers and he understands the numbers but he's telling himself a story and I'm very happy to talk through the numbers and what we know what the risks really seem to be of death of long COVID etc and how they've changed over time but of course there's more going on here than just the numbers.
4: Absolutely and Tim you would make a very good clinician by the way.
3: <laughs> You're very kind thank you. You're
4: very welcome or, or condolences either way. <laughs>
2: And that's psychologist and Stanford professor, Deborah Kaysen. On today's episode, Tim and Deborah will help us make sense of not just the numbers, but also our emotions. Brandon's situation, it's a little unusual, but it's natural to feel a degree of anxiety after all these months of just trying to survive. Stick around to find out what all of us can do about it.
0: In each episode, Kitty talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com podcast, or find it wherever you listen.
5: This episode is brought to you by Defender. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure.
2: We're back with our listener, Brandon, and experts Tim Harford and Deborah Kaysen.
4: You know, as I'm listening, Brandon, to you talking, you know, one of the things that stands out to me is, you know, as we have all navigated this pandemic, we've all had to figure out what are real threats and what are false alarms. And one of the things that has happened for people who didn't get sick is that we then make a connection between what we did and our outcome. And so now it can be really difficult to let some of those behaviors go because what we're saying is that those behaviors are what kept us safe.
2: Deborah, have you also noticed, I'm sort of personally curious about this, that with things starting to open up but still uncertainty, there's a feeling that like, well... I already put up with this for a year. Why not keep going? But then it can maybe become a, how do you ever know when to stop?
4: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think there are different responses, right? So there are some people who are ecstatic to be getting back out into the world. And there are some people who are dreading it. When we avoid things that make us anxious, avoidance feeds anxiety. Mm. And the more we don't do things, the bigger that anxiety tends to get.
2: Deborah has seen this pattern of avoidance play out in her work as a clinical psychologist. And Tim, a columnist for the Financial Times, has noticed it when people make their own mental calculations involving risk.
3: Daniel Kahneman, a great behavioral scientist, once said that when we're faced with a the difficult question we often substitute in an easier question and i sort of think that this is this is a process that's going on now so a really hard question is something like well what does a one in a million chance what does that actually mean for me and my life is that a risk i should be willing to take and the human brain is just not designed to deal with that. So instead, what we do is we drop in a different question, which is something along the lines of, could I imagine something terrible happening to me, plausibly? And the answer is, given Brandon's recent experience, well, Mm -hmm. yes, I could. I could imagine that.
2: Throughout the pandemic, Tim has been trying
3: to help people
2: understand COVID
3: stats. Uh, A few months ago, I wrote a piece about the risks of COVID. And it was was a friend of mine actually like like you, Brandon, who was nervous about going out? But he said, "I just wish somebody would write like a Martian's guide to Earth, kind of. Just a, a, a <laughs> I, I want I a guide to COVID." I crunched all the numbers and I said, uh, "I've figured it out. I think your chance of catching a fatal case of COVID, if you just go out your front door and just behave like everybody else right now, is um, one in two million <sighs> per day." So then I said, okay, well, what else is a one in a million chance? Because it doesn't really mean very much. So here's another couple of things that give you a one in a million chance of dying. So one is uh, driving about 200 miles. Another is going for a horse ride. Um, Another is a short trip on a motorbike. Now, COVID has killed a lot of people and I think is extremely dangerous. So I certainly wouldn't want people to say, oh, you know, COVID's, COVID's nothing, COVID's a small risk. But there are circumstances in which you can say, look, actually, there aren't many cases right now. I'm double vaccinated. I'm only 30. The average age of people who've died is probably about 75 or 80. This is the sort of risk that is, is comparable to things like that. the bike ride, the horse ride. Mm-hmm.
2: Here's our first tip. Put the numbers you're playing in your head into context. How does this risk compare to other risks you take every day? Nothing you do is completely without risk, and this practice might help you gain some useful perspective. But knowing the numbers, it's not always enough to change your behavior.
3: I mean, I am i have a phobia that I don't want to go into any great detail of. Um, and not only am I afraid of a particular kind of creepy crawly, um, I'm afraid of rubber models of the creepy crawly. I'm afraid of photographs of it. Now, I know that the chance that I will come to any harm as a result of a photograph of a creepy crawly is zero. I'm perfectly aware that the risk is literally zero, Um, but I'm still afraid of them. So, and I can't tell you how to feel or what to do, but I can tell you about the risks.
4: But I could help you with your fear of the creepy crawly, Tim. (laughs)
3: I'm sure you could.
4: Without telling you how to feel.
3: Well, the thing about the creepy crawly is, like, it doesn't actually affect my life.
4: And that's the issue. That's the issue, is is the cost for you is low, right? It's what are you giving up by trying to minimize risk? And is it a good trade? My guess is that you're not giving up much by avoiding the creepy crawly. But Brandon, listening to you, it sounds like you're giving up a lot in terms of social isolation and connection with people you care about.
1: Yeah, I remember like even after getting the second shot, I thought in my mind, well, I'll just do it for two more weeks, kind of washing my hands so much, like going outside so rarely and I'm almost there. But then when I hit that mark, I kind of just thought, well, What's the real harm in kind of keeping going? And I think it's exactly what Deborah said before, in that there's a subconscious part of me that just wanted to keep on doing what kept me safe beforehand. There's something kind of mental here that the 15 months have kind of built, Mm
4: -hmm.
1: built something that I'm not even aware of.
4: Absolutely. Sometimes we think about them as what are called safety behaviors. Right, so when we're feeling more anxious, we will do things that reduce that anxiety. So Brendan, your example of putting on the goggles or washing your hands, and that even as you've gotten more information, that that might not be totally necessary, because that behavior reduces the anxiety, it tends to keep going. You can think about athletes who have their lucky socks, right, same kind of thing, I do this thing, And it makes me feel better.
1: Yeah, I think it's exactly like the lucky socks.
4: So, you know, what sometimes can help is thinking about small steps. It's especially helpful if you can think about small steps that will bring more joy into your life Hmm. or more reinforcement. Okay, so you could think about maybe, you know, and I'm going to just throw out a random example, you know, going for a walk with a friend with masks on. Right? Okay, Where now you're getting to see someone that you've missed, right, that social connection is so helpful for us. And so that in and of itself is reinforcing. And it's a step towards approaching the anxiety. And so then what you do is you put those steps in order. And you start at the easiest. And you just keep doing that until that actually creates a new habit, or it doesn't seem so scary anymore. You know, Tim started by talking about that idea that we think in stories, it creates new stories for you of, I went for a walk with my friend and nothing terrible happened.
2: Here's our second tip. Recognize the habits you formed out of legitimate fear for your safety, but that are now getting in your way. These safety behaviors, they might seem harmless, but they can actually perpetuate your sense of anxiety. You didn't form those habits overnight. You're not gonna break them overnight. So practice changing those behaviors baby step by baby step, rewarding yourself along the way. Soon, the storyline in your head
1: will start to change. Recognizing that it might happen is different from thinking that it won't happen, which is different from obsessing over the idea that it will happen. And I'd like to kind of move towards a healthy worldview that recognizes It can happen still, but it doesn't mean it will happen. But of
2: course, it's still hard to assess the chance that something will or won't happen, given how the virus continues to evolve. Brandon can probably go more places and ditch the safety goggles. But what about those of us who aren't vaccinated? Like my two-year-old and other young kids. What should we do then? We'll dive into the questions that might be plugging your own dinner table conversations right after this quick break.
0: Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com.
2: We're back with Deborah Kaysen and Tim Harford, who've been helping our listener Brandon reframe the way he considers risk after he's been vaccinated. The chances of a life altering breakthrough infection are really
3: low, but Tim says you can't completely ignore the threat. I keep thinking about Wilfred Owen. Wilfred Owen was this great war poet who died one week before the end of the first world war and his mother got the telegram telling her that he had died as the church bells of her hometown of shrewsbury began to ring to celebrate the armistice i don't want to be that guy i don't want to get it one week before this is all over and I don't think you want to be that guy either, Brandon. And I don't think any of us want to be that guy. Um, And, you know, I encourage you to start thinking about how to to get out there and how to begin that process of adjustment. But I also encourage you to give yourself a break because this is really new. Hmm. The idea that it actually might be safe is a very new idea (laughs) and it will get safer. And it's not crazy to say, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait.
4: Um, I absolutely agree with Tim. like things things are hopefully continuing to move in a safe direction for all of us and and all of us accept some risk in our life. And so the question is, is the amount of joy that I will get out of this activity worth the trade? And am I making a reasonable analysis of risk? I
2: was curious to sort of talk a little more um, generally, like, Tim, for example, I'm thinking of, I just booked my first flights in the pandemic, and I'm like, oh gosh, I'm vaccinated, my wife is vaccinated, our toddler is not. I don't know, can you help me think about, about taking a cross-country flight with both of us vaccinated and a toddler not vaccinated?
3: Sure. So well, let, let's deal with the, the, the toddler first. I don't know the numbers in the US, but in the UK, the last time I talked to public health england i believe there were no instances of a healthy child under the age of five uh, dying of covid none there were a couple of cases of children with other health conditions dying of covid so there's basically no chance that uh, covid is going to cause a problem or at least no chance relative to all of the other millions of horrible things that we parents fear happening to our children. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't worry about COVID, and
2: including long COVID and and
3: whatever that Kawasaki-like syndrome thing was. Yeah, I mean these are things can always happen, right? Mm-hmm. But there's no, i don't think there's there's no there's no reason to privilege COVID over any of the other mm-hmm. things that mm-hmm. can that can go wrong in life.
4: I think Tim summarized it quite well, which is objectively, it's relatively safe, but it's not completely zero risk. And what's the trade off, right? Mm -hmm. Is it for a family vacation? Is that something that you can wait for? Is it to see a grandparent who may have a limited amount of time to see their grandchild? That might be a Mm -hmm. different calculation. And so it's not something where there is a one-size-fits-all answer. And I think that's part of what makes it so hard.
2: Deborah. a tip that's come up in various episodes of this show that relates to different kinds of anxiety has been to um, give yourself advice as if either in the third person or as if you were giving it to a friend. Is there anything like that that might be helpful when it comes to, again, giving yourself the advice of whether I'm gonna take this trip or not?
4: Absolutely. So when we get really stressed Um, one of the things that can happen is our thoughts can get fairly rigid, right? And that tends to increase our emotions. And there are a number of questions that we can ask ourselves that tends to help in getting those thoughts to be a little bit more flexible. I often think about this as teaching your brain mental yoga. What information do I have that this thought about the risk is true, right? Do I have any evidence that I'm not thinking about? Um, But another question that you can ask is, what would you say to somebody that you love about this? What would you say to your best friend?
2: Here's another tip. Do some mental yoga. Ask yourself questions about what you know and what you don't know instead of just ruminating in general uncertainty. And to get out of that what-if spiral, think of how you'd coach a friend through a cost-benefit analysis of the situation. Tim, you've written about... Insight coming from kind of combining statistical acumen with personal experience. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and how Brandon might do that.
3: Well, absolutely. Because, you know, I can look at a graph of deaths and that will give me the overview. That will show me the shape of the risks. But it's never going to take me to the intensive care unit where that person passed away. And for that, I need to then think of my own experiences of of loss. For me, very early on in this pandemic, um, a friend of mine died of COVID, who uh, was very important to me. He was the man who convinced me to become an economist, um, and that for me was brought it home very sharply. I think it is worth um, trying to find these, you know, a personal sense of what particular risks look like and another one that looms large in your own mind is of course one in two hundred thousand but there are of course other risks that you regularly run that you have found it perfectly worthwhile to run that your life is better because you ran the risk and it might be worth trying to summon to mind a few of the all of the other risks that you've gotten away with taking over the 30 years. And all of the risks you, you're going to have to get away with, mm. with taking uh, for the rest of your life until, you know, one day something will get you. And it'll <laughs> probably be, uh, it'll probably be heart disease or cancer because it, it, because it usually is. And, and you'll probably be, you know, 90 years old and you'll have lived a long and rich life, but something will get you in the end.
2: Mm. And Brendan, what are some of those like normal risks? um, you were running? I mean, I sometimes bought a hot dog from street vendors in New York, so I don't, I don't, <laughs> well, that I don't is even high want risk, to know the, yeah, I, I don't want to know.
1: <laughs> but yeah, what, what, what were some of the things, uh, you did? Oh, it, what Tim's suggestion just now is a good one. And I think actually before I got encephalitis 2016, I took a six week road trip, cross country road trip. And that was, you know, an amazing trip, you know, kind of once-in-a-lifetime type of trip. And I didn't think about the risk of driving, which has its risks attached to it, right, Mm -hmm. especially cross-country and especially kind of on Mm high-speed roadways. And in that case, it's very clear to me that that risk was worth it. Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah. Well, the thing is that you, uh, Amos Tversky, who is uh, another great psychologist, used to say, and he was kind of joking but but kind of not that the human brain thinks about risk as follows uh not going to happen could happen <laughs> definitely going to happen <laughs> <laughs> and um right now you you uh, you're thinking about covid as it, yeah. it seems like it's almost in the definitely going to happen yeah, bracket definitely exactly. going to happen unless i take these precautions and right. you need to kind of move it down into the could happen and then right. i think eventually into the not going to happen when you were driving across the country, the risk of dying in a car accident in your head was not going to happen, right? right? Even though objectively speaking, (sighs) your risk of dying in a car accident on that road trip is probably higher than your risk of serious consequences from COVID right now. And also, Brandon, you said that road trip
2: was definitely worth it.
1: What are you most missing now
2: uh, from your pre-COVID life?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, my parents are, they're getting older and uh, I'd like to spend more time with him and seeing friends, of course too and my brother's about to have a, his first child, so kind of to be there mm. when those things happen um you know when I did see my friend three weeks ago it my body i didn't i didn't expect my body to actually feel so rejuvenated mm-hmm. after humans de- you know after after seeing someone in person after, you know, 14 months of Zoom. Um,
3: It was your road trip. (laughs) (laughs) At at this stage. Yeah,
1: yeah, some some version of a road trip just within an hour. Um, But yeah, to think about what I'm missing and... What version of a a mini road trip I would take the risk for, whether it's seeing, you know, another friend another weekend or seeing my parents in person Mm -hmm. um, might be a helpful way of thinking about it. Here's our final tip.
2: It's crucial to think of the stories behind the numbers. But just as you think of what might happen, think of the stories behind the risks you've already taken. When it comes to the finite amount of time we all have, what's worth a certain level of risk to you? Brandon mentioned feeling kind of a sense of physical rejuvenation. I wonder if there are some positives that maybe people can take from this personally as they, you know, in some sort of personal resetting that's useful or important.
4: Absolutely. Um, And from a research standpoint, you know, one of the things that we talk about in the trauma field is this concept of post-traumatic growth. Now, the data around it is mixed, but it really is describing the concept that for some people going through adversity or stressors, allows people to create new meaning out of their lives. So it may be finding the things in your life that you really value, and resetting priorities. It can mean noticing the things that you don't need anymore in your life, or the things that you spent a lot of time on that weren't worth it people are remarkably resilient. And it doesn't mean that people aren't having feelings like anxiety or depression, but that when we look at how people recover after severe stressors, most people bounce back.
3: I absolutely agree. I'm a firm believer in the idea that setbacks and obstacles and disruptions, while they can be very real and catastrophic, also surprisingly often produce a creative problem-solving response. Um, I mean, David, there's, a, there's an example in your book of the great jazz guitarist, Django Reinhardt, who was uh, severely uh, injured in a fire and lost the use of, of some of his fingers. And yet he's one of the world's greatest ever guitarists because he learned to play the guitar in a different way. We just we get knocked out of our old routines, and then then we get to explore new ones.
1: This has been incredibly helpful, and very thankful for your time. Oh goodness, um, Brandon,
4: you've been a mensch to be willing to talk about your experiences.
2: Thank you to Brandon for sharing his story with us and to Deborah Kaysen and Tim Hartford for all their great advice. Be sure to check out Deborah's Twitter at Dr. Deb Kaysen and Tim's podcast, Cautionary Tales. And if you want to learn more about overcoming the anxiety when a very rare tragedy does befall you, listen to our episode, How to Survive a Shark Attack. Can you not stop worrying about something? We might be able to help send us a note at howto at slate.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-495-4001. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Rachel Allen and Rosemary Belson produce the show. Our theme music is by Hannis Brown, remixed by Merritt Jacob, our technical director. Charles Duhigg is host emeritus. I'm David Epstein. See you next time.